Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Future of Law, Good Lawyers podcast series dedicated to exploring what is and what could be when it comes to the business of law and how we as lawyers can improve access to legal services for everyone. Each week, we interview thought leaders in the legal profession on how lawyers can evolve with the times and ultimately live more fulfilled lives. Our guest today is Aaron Baer. By many standards, Aaron had it made. He was young, he was a partner at a major law firm, and he had already built an impressive book of business. His trajectory up the partnership ladder seemed to be a foregone conclusion. Yet something was missing for Aaron. As an improvement and progress junkie, Aaron was getting frustrated by his firm's lack of innovation and their unwillingness to depart from the traditional way of doing things. Despite his professional success, Aaron made the unconventional decision for a partner to leave the relative safety and comfort of his big firm to join Renault & Co, a modern law firm where his future was much less guaranteed, but as we will hear, a much better cultural fit. Now, if making one life-altering decision wasn't enough, at the same time Aaron left Big Law, he co-founded 4L Academy and Build Your Book. 4L Academy provides modern interactive training for young Canadian lawyers and law students, while Build Your Book provides modern sales training to lawyers. And if we're being honest, we all know a few lawyers who could use some help in this area. Needless to say, Aaron is not afraid of hard work, long hours, or taking risks to pursue an unconventional path that better aligns with his values and aspirations. As always, Aaron brought the noise, and if you're interested in the future of law, as the name of this podcast would suggest, I am confident this episode will leave you full of inspiration and ideas on how you can level up in the new year. If you want to hear more from Aaron, make sure you follow him on LinkedIn where he posts regularly and be sure to check out 4L Academy and build your book. 4L Academy has new courses starting in January, so if you are interested in improving your legal skills, be sure to check those out. On a final note, Good Lawyer is expanding, and we are looking for qualified lawyers from across Canada to join us on our journey to revolutionize the way we practice law. If you or someone you know is interested in joining the platform, you can find out more information and apply at goodlawyer.ca slash four lawyers. Links for everything discussed, as always, in the show notes. All right, that is it for me. Please enjoy today's discussion with Aaron Bear. Aaron, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's great to be back here, Matt. Yeah, really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, the first time was uh, was a banger. And so looking forward to obviously having you back here. But I think just to start off, a lot has changed with you since the last time we spoke. Your world looks quite a bit different. So instead of me trying to explain that, maybe I'll just turn it over to you and just give us a, a, a recap of your journey from being a partner at a law firm to where you are now. Yeah, Matt, it's been a whirlwind for sure. Uh, sometimes it feels like it's been five years uh, since I left the world of big law and, and started doing some other stuff. In reality, we're about six or seven months at this point, which is hard to believe. So at the end of May, I was a partner still at a big law firm in Canada, and I decided to leave that and, and do a couple different things. So one of those was joining a boutique firm called Renault & Co., which we're just doing things so differently. It's been a night and day difference from the environment I was in before and, and for all the best. Things. I think there was definitely some hesitancy. Well, for sure there was on my end in terms of leaving and definitely all your standard fears and worries and all of that. 
and none of those have really come to fruition. It's been all really, really good. You know, finding people that really I resonate with, where we have the same values and see the future of the profession and also see how broken the profession is. And we're all working with a really unified vision to try to practice law differently in a way that works for us, but also really works for our clients. So, so that was the first step. And that same day, pretty much, we launched 4L Academy, which obviously had been brewing behind the scenes, but we were testing our classes that week. And then we launched our live classes for about 100 Canadian law students the following week. So it was transitioning my clients from a firm, trying to service them seamlessly as I got used to new systems, you know, better ways of doing things, and then running 4L Academy there, which is basically a company I co-founded that's training lawyers. It's sort of modern training. It's what law school should have been and what I wish my training had been like at a law firm. And we're doing it in a practical, fun, and engaging way. That's super interactive. It's not lecture style. It's been really good. And we can chat more about that. And at the same time, this wasn't the plan, but we also launched with another co-founder, a company called Build Your Book, which is training lawyers on modern sales and modern business development. Good Lawyer has an amazing role to play, I think, in helping people find clients. But for people that are looking to supplement that or do it a little bit differently, we give them the skills to do that. And we've had just an amazing experience that's made such a big difference for a lot of lawyers. And again, happy to chat more about that too. That's incredible. And already there's a few different threads we can pull on, which we will. I think just starting with the first things you said, though, I want to dig into that. You talked about the fears of leaving. You know, you were a partner. Partners don't leave law firms, at least traditionally. Yet I have spoken with three over the last probably two weeks that were in similar positions to you, had it made gold standard in law and they've left their firm. I've also spoken with a number of other partners who are in the process of really thinking about leaving. This seems to be a new trend. Uh, Maybe speak a little bit to what you're seeing there and then also to those fears because that's what typically comes up in those conversations is these partners are saying, look, I have a mortgage, I have a family. I can't just leave. They feel a little bit stuck. So uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you made that jump. For sure. Yeah. I think partners leaving is a relatively new concept and, 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 but first you almost have to take a step back and say, you know, why would you want to be a partner in the first place or do you? <laughs> and I think that used to be the default. That was the, you know, the big achievement and whatever. And while your parents may love that or other people in your family, your kid has made it, whatever, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's not exactly the pinnacle of happiness, right? It might be professional success on paper, but is that what you want? And the irony is I actually didn't want to be a partner. I almost turned it down. And some of those conversations internally were hilarious because it was sort of like, I got to give you my money. I'm going to be an equity partner. There's risk here. Like you tell me why I should be a partner. I'm, I'm doing math here. This is a pure objective decision for me. And I don't see a lot of benefits. And, and that was really hard for, I think, a lot of people to understand internally. And in general, there is such a culture of why wouldn't you want to be a partner? The gift is partnership. <laughs> you know, you should be bowing down. And I said, I don't, I don't think that's true anymore. I don't think I want this. And more importantly, financially, I'm taking on risk. I'm no longer an employee. I lose all those rights. I've got to hand over money to you that you still have right now, even after I've left. There's all sorts of stuff that nobody talks about. And when you do the math, it really depends on the firm. What I underestimated was the value externally of being a partner. I think that has been helpful from a business development standpoint and from a credibility standpoint. I think it's nonsense, but the reality is uh, there is still a public perception like, oh, you're a partner, you must be competent, you must be insert other positive traits. So while I don't necessarily think those are, are, are something you should ascribe to someone who makes a partner, it is still the reality. So I underestimated that, but I didn't really, you know, like, I think you got to look and say at any firm you're at, are the people ahead of me happy? Whether it's two years ahead, four years ahead, 10 years ahead, and do they have lifestyles I would want to emulate? And I also sort of looked at it and said, it's not a money thing for me. Like, 
I like to make money, but money is not going to make me happy once you have a certain level of it. And obviously the amount of money I was making was more than the average Canadian, but it was a whole lot less. Like at every firm, you get paid differently in partnership. And at the firm I was at, the bump between being an associate and being a first-year partner was way less than people might think. It was not overly significant in the grand scheme of things. So, and also the way a lot of firms are structured is that partners typically don't get paid the same. And that a lot of these firms, the people making the most are the people that have been there for a while. And of course, with big books of business, but I was looking at our grid. So there's a partnership grid, sort of seeing how would this work? And I kept thinking, if I work really hard and my practice keeps growing the way it is, and I do this stuff, the firm is going to be making a fortune off me And over time, I will get some of that back, but they're basically building an insurance policy on me. They're going to pay me way less than they should be until I've made them so much money that they're now comfortable giving me more. And I kept thinking like, this doesn't make sense. We're rewarding these people on the decline. Then they kept saying, you know, well, Aaron, just be patient. Your time will come. And I'm like, I don't believe any of these big firms will look anything like this in 30 years when I'm thinking about retirement or whatever. And I'm not interested in waiting and constantly being told, just be patient, just be patient. So Financially, I was looking at it, but more from a happiness standpoint than anything. And when I made the decision to leave, I did that with the expectation I'd be leaving money on the table. And I was certainly leaving guaranteed money on the table because as a partner, typically, like as an associate, you've got a fixed salary or a draw or whatever. And if you if you underperform, it'll affect you the next year, but it won't affect you typically that year. And I left to go to a firm where a lot of the people we pay are paid based on the work they do. So if I do no work, I get paid zero. But if I perform anywhere close to what I was doing at my old firm, I would probably actually make more. But the goal was to also work less. That was part of the plan because I have all these side projects and I didn't want to just be a lawyer for 12 hours a day or whatever. So uh, that's part of the reason I left. And and also it was really these side projects were unfortunately just not encouraged in the way I needed them to be. And I wasn't getting that support. It It was the opposite of that. I was basically being told I couldn't do these things. And I was just so passionate about trying to reform the legal industry, trying to help solve these problems training, mental health, all of this. And I wasn't going to keep getting told no and just accepting that. <laughs> I had sort of set a deadline internally. The timeline wasn't met. And I said, okay, I, I promise like I've got to leave if this doesn't happen and I'm going to leave. And, and that's what happened. Um, but in terms of fears, I think, you know, one is financially, right? Whether you've got kids or a mortgage or whatever, you know, you're giving up stability, but that stability financially comes with a huge trade-off. It could be quality of life in terms of how many hours you have to work or whatever. It could be the trade-off on the top end. So if you're really performing well, the firm is making a killing off you. If you're underperforming, then it's a great, you want to stay, right? Like that's, it's rewarding the underperformers in a lot of ways. And just, you know, at a bigger firm, you have all these resources, right? I've got some of the top tax people in the country next to me and the top this and the top that I can call anytime I want, right? Going to a smaller firm, you lose that. But the reality is you keep those networks and I still talk to people regularly. But I think the future of law is small law. Big law is bloated. It's super, you know, there's a lot of overhead and stuff and we can run a really modern law firm with so much less overhead, work less, make the same, if not more money and provide way better value in an experience to clients. So that part has been great. Yeah, that's incredible. And just as you were speaking about your analysis about whether to join the partnership ranks, uh, which has traditionally been the gold standard, as you alluded to, it kind of reminded me of buying a house, which I recently looked into and chose not to actually for, for many reasons, 
partially because I am working at a startup right now and not making as much as I used to, <laughs> but, but also uh, it, kind of what you were saying, it's like back when my parents went through and they bought a house, you know, it made sense. It was like under 10 years salary. Now you look at it and there's people who are looking at 30 year mortgages and it just doesn't make sense anymore. It just kind of reminded me of that where you're saying, is this even going to be how this yeah, looks? You're, you're, you're leading me on a slippery there? slope. I could talk about my views on the housing market. I agree with you uh, all day, but, but I think, you know, <laughs> there's so much emotionality when it comes to, or whatever the right word is, when it comes to buying a house, most people are buying with emotion. And, and I think, you know, you want to try to look at it objectively, at least. And, and I did the same with the partnership decision. And I think that's not typical. Um, but people really should be thinking about partnership and understanding it earlier. And firms often hide all mm. this stuff until the very end. Of course. And if you're, you know, gunning for partnership only to discover what it actually looks like, that's not a game you should play. You, you need to find out what the rules are. And they vary from firm to firm. And the likelihood of it, because if you're going to grind that hard for that partnership goal, only to discover what it actually looks like, you may not be into that. And I'm not saying partnership is bad at a lot of firms, especially the equity partners are making just an absolute fortune. And at the firm I was at too, I mean, people were obviously compensated well, but understanding what that process looks like, I think is helpful and understanding not all partners are the same. You don't just get a voice at the table just because you can become a partner. Right. And I was not interested in not having a voice at the table. <laughs> no kidding. And and then the partners that I've spoken to, their fears seem to stem around, will their book of business that they've worked to develop, like you mentioned, it, it was them kind of building this book, but through the firm, would they be able to maintain that? And then also the, you know, unwinding that partnership, which sounds a little bit scary. And I don't want to belabor this point too much, but did that work out fairly well for you? Uh, is it as nasty as some maybe painted to be, or it, it seems like you're smiling. So I it wasn't that's nasty. A... <laughs> uh, you know, I can't get into too much. I would say sure. there are things that could have been handled differently, uh, but I'll right. chalk it up to everybody acting in good faith. What I will say is, yeah, transferability is a big thing. You know, the firm I work at Renault and co we do uh, a lot of tech. We do a lot of emerging tech. So blockchain, crypto, we're one of the top firms in the country, just flying under the radar. And then your standard corporate commercial, M&A, all that sort of stuff. We don't do really litigation. We don't do commercial real estate. We don't do immigration, any of those things. So if you have a book of business that requires a lot of different areas that you don't do, it's going to be challenging if you join a boutique firm that doesn't do those areas. Obviously, we've built relationships with people in different places. So we can sort of operate like a big firm uh, without that. But if you're really, if you have a book that's really dependent on other experts in completely different areas you don't practice doing the work, that's a little bit less portable to a smaller firm, but it's definitely portable uh, to a bigger firm. For me, it actually worked well. And, and you know, one of the, the ridiculous things I think at law firms is how credit is allocated on files. And that was another point of frustration for me where there were cases where I was the sole person dealing with a client for the last, let's say, three, four years. Nobody else was talking to them. I was getting zero credit for that other than hours built. Somebody else who had brought the client in 20 years ago and had never talked yeah. to them since was getting credit for the relationship I was managing, the new work I was bringing in and the work I was doing, which was ridiculous, I thought, and not a good incentive. And it's tough. It's tough to do this from an incentive standpoint. But let's just say uh, a lot more clients followed me than I was expecting or had even asked in addition to my own clients. So it ended up being that, you know, clients go with lawyers they like. And if you can build mm -hmm. good relationships with clients, that's what you want to do. And they'll follow you because they're not beholden or loyal to a firm. They're typically lo right. loyal to the people they work with. And if they really have a strong relationship with you, they'll tend to follow. So that was a nice little unexpected surprise. 
Yeah, that's incredible. And I remember looking into the partnership model back when I was working at a firm and it quickly became apparent. I didn't stay as long as you did, but I was like, oh, I don't like this game at all. And I think the more people that are looking at it, we're starting to see uh, mid-level associates on partnership paths starting to jump ship. And it it seems like I know this was like the, one of the most profitable years for law firms ever, if not ever, but there does seem to be like a weakening at the foundations here that may rear its ugly head in, in a few years to some of these firms. And, and it's interesting because I speak to a lot of lawyers in my day to day. This is not an uncommon sentiment. It seems to be like fully agreed to by most lawyers that I speak to that it's like, hey, this system isn't working kind of what you just said, I want more flexibility, I have side projects I want to work on, not just be a lawyer 13, 14 hours a day indefinitely. So yeah, I, I think this is going to resonate quite a bit with many of the people who are listening to us. And, and especially those even in higher up positions that you know, have something to lose, they seem to be getting to that point where they are making that jump, which is yeah. fascinating. And one thing I'll say there quickly, Matt is, you know, I think law firms, again, traditionally, not all, but but I'm generalizing here, have treated their younger lawyers as, as replaceable or, or fungible, to right. use a word that I think we all knew before the NFT phase, because <laughs> uh, you learn that in law school. But, and I actually had conversations with this too, when I was thinking about leaving, they're like, we can just replace you. I'm like, well, that is uh, not really what I want to hear. The way you describe me as that replaceable, and, and you really can't replace a lot of the stuff I do, because I was practicing in such a different way. But law firms have traditionally, like accounting firms, and, and like, quite frankly, lots of professional services things operated on the assumption that if people leave, you just replace them. And therefore they're okay with people leaving, even though there's a massive cost, whether it's recruitment fees, training, onboarding, it's not good to have that level of attrition. And we're at this point now, especially in Canada with the U.S. needing more, more lawyers and therefore uh, a lot of people going to the U.S. just because the salary bump is so big, where firms are, I think have been struggling and now they're afraid of people leaving, which is interesting. The power has shifted so much in the last year and a half, the start of the pandemic, firms are talking about firing people or there were salary reductions, right. right? We've almost forgotten about those. And now you've got firms just throwing money at people. The irony, of course, is the money is not going to stop anything. It's just a temporary solution. Those people will leave after they get their bonuses because if you hate what you're doing or aren't enjoying it, you're not going to stay. But it will keep you there in the short term. And if that's all the firms need, that's fine. But long term, I think firms really have to be thinking about understanding why are people unhappy? Why are they leaving? And what are we going to do fundamentally to change it? And that's tough when your business model is to grind people <laughs> an excessive number of hours to pay partners a lot of money. And that can right. work, don't get me wrong. And if people know what they're signing up for, but I think the reality is the average younger lawyer, the average lawyer in general, doesn't love what they're doing. And if that's the case, you've got a revolving door. And as that middle hollows out, as those people go in-house, they do other stuff, you know, you might have a shortage there and you really need to then upskill your juniors. And, and I think in general, there may not have been as good enough focus, certainly in law school, but also at firms in helping people understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. And with Furl Academy, which we'll talk more about, we yeah. really try to do that because I think once you understand what you're doing, there's a lot more meaning to it and you're actually more likely to stay. I actually like being a lawyer. I like the legal work I do. Right. And between my day job and my other side projects, I'm working a lot. But I enjoy it. And I'm not, that's a whole different ballgame than doing work you don't enjoy and working long hours with no end in sight. It's, it's so different. So I think that that feeling of fulfillment looks a lot different depending on who you're working with, what you're doing, and what role you feel you're playing in this kind of thing. I couldn't agree more. So give me your thoughts on how to build a modern law firm then, because I know you're big into tech, big into efficiencies. What 
is your vision on how to do this differently now that you've kind of left the firm structure? Yeah, so at Renault, I think we're we are building a modern law firm, and we're we're hiring currently. We're going through you know some discussions with people, and, and really looking at I think things differently. So step one is you know low low overhead, right? So we've got a WeWork you know Montreal. We allow anyone who's not there to have a WeWork office anywhere they want, basically, whether they're in Toronto, Alberta, somewhere else. Uh, so just from an overhead standpoint, when we add more lawyers. It looks very different. Like at the, my, my former big law firm, I can't get into numbers, but the aggregate amount of money being paid for rent and what percent of, of firm buildings it made up was stunningly high, right? We were in a prime building in downtown Toronto with a nice view. You know, it's not cheap. And, and a lot of firms, if you've been into their, their office buildings, not that most people have been there in a while, you've got all the fancy art and all this nonsense. Like who cares? Like I didn't care about that pre-pandemic. And I can assure you, no client cares about that now. So you've got this massive overhead. You've got a lot of people who've been there for a while that are expensive to fire, and you've got a lot of inefficient processes built in, and it's really hard to change. And I spent a lot of time working, bringing in new tech, trying to change internal processes, really helping try to modernize stuff, but it's really tough. You've got to manage egos. You've got to manage incentives. You've got to manage fear. You've got to manage uh, competencies and, and all that stuff and culture. So at some point in time, I was sort of done with trying to turn around a ship that you know didn't really want to be steered and was going to take a long time to steer. And I figured, okay, if I'm going to leave, I got to go somewhere where, where we're aligned sort of to start. And so joined Renault Co., which had been around for a couple of years and was growing nicely, at, still was a small firm. And the way we do it, I think, is very different. So it comes partly with the people we hire. Like we're picky and we're getting pickier, I think, with who we bring on. They need to fit into our ethos which is really the legal profession is broken to some extent. We want to provide good value. They got to be comfortable and open with technology. They got to be super open-minded and all that kind of stuff. The attitude I think is key. If we, if we have people that don't have the right attitude for us, we will become a normal law firm, which we don't want to be. So that's part one, right? Part two is you can work as much or as little as you want. We don't have targets, right? So from an incentive standpoint, uh, some people are getting paid a fixed amount, like a salary with you know upside. Some are, are getting paid just based on what they do. But the goal here, again, is we can add you. You don't need your own assistant. You don't need your own fancy real estate space here. Like if you know, you're an actor on the side, you've got your own side business, that's okay. In fact, we like that. Do that. It will make you happier. And especially right. if you're running your own business, you will relate better to clients and provide better advice. So a lot of our exactly. team, pretty much over half our team, does something on the side as a business. They're trying to grow something. They're working on it. So it's not just me. And we like that and we support each other. We try to help each other with our own side businesses. And that's been really nice. In terms of tech and process, I think those are often you know, lumped together. I think process is almost more important, but tech becomes part of the process. So constantly looking to get rid of waste. How can we automate this? How can we do this? There's so much stuff that happens manually in most firms. And I don't just mean the legal work. I mean the back office stuff, the client onboarding, uh, the billing, all of this stuff, and just constantly looking to get better there. Uh, we do project management stuff. So we use Asana. Every single thing internally happens on Asana or Teams. There are no internal emails allowed. That is definitely wow. banned. And Asana is awesome. I was sort of using that previously, but not to this extent. If you've got modern project management software, everything's organized. If the clients want to be in the loop, they can be involved in it too and see exactly what we're doing. So they can be in our client portal. They can see our, our workflow and know exactly what deadlines there are, where we're at and all that stuff. And we've got a project manager. One of our early hires was a project manager to keep us on track. And so really building good processes and then using the kind of tech you'd want to be using. So some of that is legal tech. 
And thankfully, I built up a lot of relationships with the companies from my prior work. So we already had a bunch of stuff and I've brought in even more. And then other of it is just your normal tech stack you see in any tech company, a CRM to, to manage your relationships, all sorts of different stuff, password management software, this, that, but really just modern tech that you'd see in a normal tech company, but in a law firm running like a tech company in a really good, clean way. And that leads to happier people, better work for clients and happier clients, which is what we all want. That's incredible. I resonate with so much of what you just said there. And one of the things that really stood out is that you allow the clients to see where their work is. That must be such a revelation because that even when I've worked with lawyers, even lawyers within my own firm, you have no, it goes into the black box and you have no clue where it's at. And then you're, you're wasting time kind of constantly checking up via email traditionally you know, back and forth, this and that, and just everyone's wasting time. So that's, that's incredible. And I'm sure your clients really appreciate it. I also yeah, just too wanna, much stuff lives oh, in email ahead. purgatory, right? Like that's it's exactly. so inefficient and, and clients like it. Not every client wants that, but certainly we make it available to them. And that's, I think a nice touch. Yeah. And your, your other point about taking the time to hire correctly, could not agree with that more. A good lawyer, obviously we don't hire our lawyers. They are independent contractors essentially. But that being said, the process that we've set up is essentially like hiring. We, we take it just as seriously because you're right. If you're not aligned, you're just asking for problems. If we've done that in the past and learned our lesson, hopefully. I'm sure we'll make mistakes. It's not a 100% we, We've learned process, our lesson but, as well. Yeah, I think we're, yeah. we're a lot more deliberate. And I think what we've realized is like we know ourselves and like what we stand for. And we've got to be the one sort of reaching out to our networks. Recruiters don't really understand necessarily what we do or who the right person is. But especially as a small team, you got to hire, right? And we've learned that the hard way for sure. Well, hey, thank you for that masterclass in how to set up a modern law firm. You're welcome, everybody. This is uh, this is why we do this. That was fantastic. Switching gears here to your new projects, touching back on some of the fears of leaving the traditional legal space. One of them is that in a firm, you don't have to do everything. In fact, this is kind of a, a, a little secret in the legal profession. Oftentimes lawyers don't know how to actually do the nuts and bolts of law. Like they have paralegals, they have legal systems. They don't actually file the documents oftentimes themselves. And also their practice tends to be fairly narrow. So when they jump to something new, they have to, they have a lot of learning to do. You have a new project called 4L, uh, 4L Academy that potentially can help with some of this. Maybe just take us through what, uh, prompted you to start this project and just some of the goals that you're hoping to achieve through it. Yeah. So for Academy is sort of my, my main passion project on the side and, and, it, and I've done a lot of sort of training and mentoring and, and tutoring and stuff in a past life, tutored hundreds of business students. When I was at Western, I did a dual degree with business and law, ran some small group sessions, lots of one-on-one. And then I used to run some big sessions, raise some money for charity. It was all, it was all good stuff. Um, always really enjoyed that. When I was articling, I thought, do I leave law to become a teacher? And I think most people think about leaving law in general when they're articling or in their first year. <laughs> Decided not to go through with that. But I've always enjoyed some of that teaching stuff. And and when I was an associate, you know, I'd go to all these training sessions, whether internally or externally, and I just thought most of them sucked. Um, I'm not a huge fan of law school. Didn't hate it. And I know you guys have had a number of conversations with Dean Holloway at the University of Calgary where they're doing some really good stuff right. to make it a lot more practical and engaging. And I do a bunch of work with Lincoln Alexander, uh, the law school at Ryerson, and they're awesome. Like, I love what they're doing. Their curricula is fantastic. It's so much more hands-on and the students are learning and talking about stuff. Like I didn't learn about it until I started working full-time as a lawyer. So it's amazing that they're doing that. But the average law school, and certainly when I was in law school, looked nothing like that. I was top of my class in first year. I was a good exam writer, which is the key for that and a really fast typist. 
and you know started working at, at a big firm in my 1L summer. I got one of those jobs. So 1L, 2L, articling. I had lots of experience and I wasn't completely dumb, but I had no idea what I was doing. Like I was not prepared <laughs> whatsoever for the practice of law. And I just had no understanding. Like law school, especially on the corporate side, really wasn't getting me there. And so you're an associate and you're trying to do stuff for the first time and no one's really taking the time to teach you. You're sort of learning on the fly on deals. But what it means is everyone has a really inconsistent training experience, right? The person next to me who might be the same year of call as me knows different stuff, but nobody knows what they know or what I know. And while there might be some benchmarks sitting on a shelf in a book, nobody was really thinking about these and being active, at least where I was at the time. And so the real challenge became my third or fourth year, people wanted me to start running files. And I'm going like, I don't want to do any of this stuff. I cannot be doing this. They're like, no, it's a small dollar thing. You have to. I'm like, I don't think you understand. I don't have a clue what I'm doing. This is not good for the client. And whether this deal is 500 million or $5, 80% of it is the same. And no one had ever taught me any of this stuff. And especially as a junior lawyer, you often spend a lot of time just doing what you're told. And a lot of that work, quite frankly, could just be automated. Like if you're just changing names, like why are you even doing this in the first place? The challenge is that as you upskill, as you become the person eventually on this path to running the files, which means understanding the big picture, dealing with clients, translating what they say they want into what they actually should want. And that is being a lawyer, right? The client says, I want this. My job is to say, I don't think you actually want that. Let me ask you these three other questions. And based on that, okay, you actually want this or, hey, we need to solve this tax issue first before we do what you say, because if we do what you say, we're in trouble most likely. So to get there, you need to understand the big picture and you don't learn the big picture by randomly working on files. You're just accumulating bits and pieces. But the problem is you could take a deal I just worked on and change one thing, right? The buyer is now American instead of Canadian. If you can't tell me what the difference is, that means all you can do is replicate the same deal over and over again or do exactly what you're told. And that's what junior associates do. And that's okay at that stage. But the goal is not for you to be in that position forever. So how do we get you starting early to actually start understanding the big picture so that when you're working on files, you understand why you're being asked to do stuff. You can take things to the next level without having to be told to do them. And that you have a learning curve that's a lot more of a natural incline, and not what I had, which was a hockey stick, which is great for startups like Good Lawyer and terrible from a mental health standpoint uh, and a skill standpoint as a lawyer, where suddenly I'm going, I have to learn everything. And I just felt like I knew nothing. It was imposter syndrome, part real and part in my head got high standards for myself, but I also had no idea what I was doing. And it came down to how I was trained. And what I realized is this wasn't unique to my firm. It wasn't unique to me. This was an issue in the profession, starting in law school with a lot of law schools saying, we're not even there to train you. Our job is to train you to think like a lawyer, which is not very right. valuable. So what I wanted to do was try to fix that, but also really build in a lot of legal tech because I found that a lot of training, the substantive part was separate from the tech. And my view is we should learn it together and if we want people to adopt technology, which we need from an access to justice reason, from a mental health reason, from a value to client reason, you need to use the tech when it doesn't count and you need to understand when it can be applied. And so if we can train you, for example, in our closings course for articling students and first year associates that we're running now and that we're reopening, it'll be open when this airs, restarting in January, highly encourage people to join that. But if we're running that course, like we should be teaching you closing folders or deal closer or insert one of those other leading platforms so that not only you're learning why are you drafting these documents and we're taking you through interactive activities and that stuff, but you're learning how to do it in a modern way so that you can be a modern lawyer 
and not a lawyer that doesn't know how to use legal tech at all. So we're doing some really cool stuff. It's been super interactive and engaging and the feedback's just been incredible. And people can check out more at 4lacademy.ca and we start enrollment for January courses by the time this airs. Yeah. And also just, it's so exciting when I first jumped on there and we had a previous conversation where one of the things that we're doing at Good Lawyer is we're onboarding all these lawyers who are looking for this type of training. So obviously when I saw that, I got very excited because not, not only do I see ways that lawyers who are on our platform can benefit from what you're creating, but it's just more of a relief, frankly, to see that something like this is finally coming out. And I know there has been legal training in the past and all that, but it's typically been done through the law society. And don't get me wrong, they do a great job, but it's not like that in-depth sort of like, this is how you do it. It, it it's, tends even at that point to stay at sort of a higher level. And so to see this practical training of here's how you can do your job. I, I was just, like I said, a sense of relief almost came over me because there's like, here's, here's an option. Here's how you can get better because before yeah. you were re just relying on the person above you to take time out of their busy schedule, which trust me, doesn't always happen to show you how to do it. Like you said, you almost have to crack this code on your own. And that's a really intimidating place for especially junior lawyers to be. For sure. And part of the way I got there is in, in that third or fourth year, I was thinking about leaving law. Like I was getting, you know, from a mental health standpoint, I was just anxious because I realized, like I started to realize how little I knew. And also clients were relying on me. And I'm like, you should not be asking me these questions. I have no idea what the answers are. And so I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours self-teaching, reading, and then reaching out to mentors, uh, both at my old firm and elsewhere, who once I realized I had questions, I was like, hey, Matt, you know, can I borrow your time for an hour? I have 50 questions on shareholders agreements. And once I get these answered, now I can see how this fits together and, and see this map. And after I went through all that, I was like, why did no one just teach me this way? Right. When you understand, but you got to really get the building blocks in place. And as you alluded to, Matt, the incentives are not normally aligned in any law firm, right? Lawyers do get paid based on hours they bill and work they bring in. So mentorship and that stuff is, we'll call it expected, but certainly not uh, incentivized. And every younger lawyer, myself included, wants more feedback. And so how do you get that? Well, you got to design something where feedback is at its core and we're there to teach and we're incentivized to teach. And everyone we have teaching is a practicing lawyer. We're building out lots more courses that will be ready at some point in the new year, but they're all super interactive. So these are not lectures. So much CPD, CLE out there. It's just a talking head. And that's great. Some of these people are experts. They know way more than me, but you don't actually learn a lot. You, you take away right. one or two points and that's it. We, we do so many simulations and hands-on stuff and interactive stuff. And that's how people learn. Yep. Everyone's talking in class. It's interactive. It's engaging. It looks effectively like nothing what, what people have ever seen. It's not rocket science, but it's new to the legal <laughs> profession. And usually when I show people a little excerpt, like a five-minute snip of what one of our classes looks like, then they get it. They're like, okay, yeah, this is not what our firm's training looks like. Right. And so that's really been helpful too. We're also building for some of the bigger firms some private classes that'll be launching the new year. Can't disclose those quite yet, but there's a lot of firms that are realizing this is just such a great supplement to what they're doing. They've already got good totally. training, but they realize to connect with younger lawyers to really do what they want from a time and resources standpoint, they've got to look externally. And we're so excited to be partnering with them and building some really cool stuff. So who is 4L Academy targeted at? Is it at lawyers who are in firms and looking to take that leap? Is it for solos who need that additional mentorship and expertise? Like, who are you going after here? Great question. You know, we're, we're both B2B and B2C at the same time. And I think Good Lawyer has similar things, right? You know, you've got to get your client pipeline and your lawyer pipeline. And, and we have two sort of targets. 
the, the vision in my head and in our team's head is really that we are there for you from when you're a law student all the way through, I'll call it your first five or so years of practice. The idea being that one of the challenges of being a lawyer is you don't plateau or, or you're not supposed to plateau. The second you master something, you get moved on to the more complicated part of the file or the transaction or whatever it is. And it's really hard to have just-in-time training at a firm where they go, okay, Matt's at this stage now, we want him to do this. Where's that training today or over the next couple months for Matt? That doesn't exist. And so we sort of started with the bottom of the pyramid, you can call it. So we started over the summer with summer students. We're now up to articling students in first years. Some are in our private courses are for first, second, and third-ish year associates. So we're constantly building more and more. And the idea is going to be sort of covering that entire journey. Because I'm a big believer, like, I like being a lawyer. I think everyone can enjoy being a lawyer. But part of what you need is obviously working reasonable hours. The other part is you got to understand what you're doing and how it fits in and how you can help people. Because when you understand that and you're not living in fear all day and anxiety all day, well, this is good. But if you don't know what you're doing and you're expected to be perfect and you're expected to do everything quickly, it's a mental health disaster. Yep. And that's why I often say so much of what we're doing is it's from a mental health angle. It's a mental health business masquerading as a training company. And obviously on the side, we're running so many free events for law students, we're running mental health stuff, starting the new year, legal tech standalone stuff, starting the new year. Pretty much everything we do is free except for the paid substantive courses. But really right. we're looking and saying this profession is so broken. I'm done complaining. Let's fix it. <laughs> and let's band together some people who want to help and let's here, do our here. part to make this way better. Yeah, incredible. And you know, the other thing that I love uh, about what you're doing is that one of the chief problems that we've realized through Good Lawyer is that when you're at a firm, you have access to resources, you have this in-house training, you have all the precedents and all the subscriptions, or at least some of them, you know, not as many as we'd like, obviously, but (laughs) lawyers will never be satisfied on that point. But when you go out on your own, all of that is gone, including the training. And this is what I love about this is this is going to allow, at least from what I'm seeing, is smaller firms to punch at a much bigger weight than they may otherwise be able to do. Because if you're in a firm of two, three, four lawyers, you don't have time to develop an extensive training process and, and, and implement this. It just takes too much time. Is that one of the things that you see as well as a, one of the possible benefits? A hundred percent. So, you know, we're going after a large swath of the market, we'll call it. Uh, and that's some point, maybe we'll scale that back. But but the big firms need this too. You know, Great. I spent my career up, up until the end of May in big firms. So I know that environment well. And, and having spoken to hundreds of people about this, it all resonated with them. So if the big firms need this, you better believe the small and mid-sized firms absolutely yeah. need this. And with the mid-sized market, to give you an example, they all get this immediately, right? They generally don't have full-time training people there. So naturally the training isn't happening to the same extent. So for them, the fact they can pay under $1,000 per person, let's say they enroll seven people, right? For seven grand, they didn't have to hire a person to do this job full-time. They're getting amazing training. That's incredible value. And they're seeing the, the benefits right away. The big firms often have people that do training, but the fun part is that they don't actually have the substantive knowledge usually, and they have to work with the lawyers who don't have an incentive to train other than a moral or an uh, implicit you know, one. So that's been interesting. So the mid-size and definitely the small firms are a huge part of our market because there's no reason we can't give them the amazing training you might get at a bigger firm or the amazing training you might want uh, and that they need, but but no one has the time uh, to do for sure. Or you hire one articling student, you're not going to run custom training for that student. You don't have the lunch and learns. You don't have those sessions. So we can bring that to them, but way better than what they would traditionally get anyways. 
amazing. Now we've been dancing around it a little bit, so we might as well tackle it head on here. We were discussing before we started recording just about mental health and some of the issues, which I know is near and dear to your heart and obviously something that you've gone through personally. One of the things that we were talking about is that it's difficult for high achievers, which typically many lawyers are, to shut off. And one of the interesting things is that, yeah, when we add this new tech and these efficiencies, sure, that may reduce the burden or lawyers will just find a way to pack more into their schedule. How do you, as a lawyer and as an entrepreneur, and, and we're going to talk about your other project, which we haven't even discussed yet, how do you balance all of this uh, and not burn out? As I was saying to you before, I'm at the moment, I feel like I'm burning the candle at both ends, which happens in a startup from time to time. There are periods of extended exertion that can grind you a little bit, but when it's something that you enjoy doing, it's a completely different ballpark. But how do you manage all of this with without dipping into those reserves that eventually will come back to bite you? Yeah, it's a good question. I definitely don't have all the answers. And if we had my wife do a, do a solo episode, she, <laughs> she, she'd give you the real answers. Um, so, I mean, you know, wh- when I left the firm I was at, part of what I wanted to do was work less in my day job as a lawyer. And, and, and I think I've been doing that for the most part. I set a lower target, like an internal target for myself. My practice has also been growing a lot. So that's a great, great problem to have, but it also means the work has to get done. So part of that is doing a lot of internal training, getting way more comfortable delegating stuff and just accepting that because I've got a lot on the go, two sort of side products that are both doing well and growing at least uh, a full-time job and a practice that's almost exploding right now, which again is a good thing, but obviously they come with, you know, corresponding demands on you and obligations. So Part of it was early in the pandemic, the opportunity cost was zero. I wasn't leaving my house much. There was nothing to do where I was uh, in Ontario. And so I didn't really care. I was actually glad to have some ideas I was working towards and and goals and purposes. That was, I think, what kept me going throughout the pandemic. So I think languishing has been a word that's been talked about a lot. And I've been lucky. I haven't been languishing because I've been trying new stuff and I'm seeing it. No, lots of ups and downs. Like this has not been a straight line journey by any means. Like anyone who was on the first call we had with a law firm about Foral Academy six months ago, I just absolutely shat on. My old firm also <laughs> told me this is the worst idea I've ever heard. It's going to be a huge failure. You know, there was a lot of lack of support in the early days. And then we also got a lot of firms. Some firms loved it. And they're like, yeah, we're going to get 60 people in. And we still haven't worked with that firm. So it's not like this has been a linear journey. So part of the entrepreneurial ride that you and I, Matt, are both on is learning about those ups and downs. But in terms of not burning out, I was going to work less and that was going to leave time for the side projects and ideally have some kind of balance. And that hasn't necessarily been the case so far. Got two side things. I'm doing some stuff at Lincoln Alexander at Ryerson. I'm doing some board stuff. I do a lot of mentoring and all this stuff, but I like what I'm doing. And so from an energy standpoint, I'm excited. I like doing these podcasts. I like talking to people and working with younger lawyers. I like training lawyers on, on business development and sales that we'll talk about in a second. I love teaching my 4L classes. So I get excited by that. I'm wired by the time I'm done teaching. So it's a good thing. The challenge obviously is, is it sustainable? And how do I take care of the health? And so obviously like sleeping is critical and making sure mm-hmm. I'm doing well at that, which at times I am, at times I'm not. I try to cap my day at a certain time. That time is usually later than the average person would. <laughs> but just realizing if you're burning the candle at both ends, you're in trouble. So is my goal to do a little bit less myself and work less? Absolutely. That means building our teams out, trusting people, training them and letting them fly, whether it's at Renault, whether it's at 4L or or build your book, the other one. That's the big, I think, thing for me for 2022. It's my number one priority is making this all sustainable. 
at some point, maybe something gives, maybe I say, look, you give up one of these or you just delegate it because I'm sort of, I've taken on way more than I should have, but I'm passionate about this stuff. So with 4L, I have this enormous vision of what it looks like on the mental health arm of it, which maybe becomes a nonprofit down the road. Like all that stuff will be free, but really it's okay. I mapped this all out a couple of weekends ago in, in Miro because someone asked me how they could help. I'm like, I got to map this out to figure out what we even do. Yeah. And then I looked and went, holy crap, I am doing every single function pretty much. Obviously we have a team of people, but yep. All right. Got to start delegating better. So that's part of it. But I think burnout isn't just about how many hours you're working. It's also, are you feeling fulfilled? Are you feeling rewarded? Are you feeling appreciated? And I work at a firm now where I definitely feel those things. My side stuff, I'm, I'm sort of the boss, but obviously it's stuff I'm passionate about. Totally. So that all comes together for me to sort of say, I'm being authentic with what I'm doing. I'm doing stuff I believe in and we're seeing results and all of that makes me happy. So yes, I'm working more than I want to and I got to dial that back to be sustainable and I'm working on that. But I, I think it's, it's different when you're working a lot and not passionate about it and not seeing a goal you're working towards. The goal cannot just be a paycheck. And neither For All Academy nor Build Your Book are about money for me. If they were, this wouldn't be working well. They're because I'm passionate about this and I believe in it and I'm excited to see what we can accomplish. So quick tips or tricks or recommendations for people who are learning to delegate, who are getting busy. How how, how did you figure out how to do that? Oh, I'm certainly no expert. I I did some good Googling on this uh, a week ago. I I think for people, if you're not good at this, which includes me, you got to figure out why. And that's the mental side, right? Like what is actually stopping you? What is that fear? Is it control? Is it fear of mistakes, fear of losing clients? There's tons of stuff you can Google on how to delegate better, like the you know, HBR articles and, and things like that. And then really just reminding myself, none of these visions will come to reality until I can grow under right. me, right? Because I will indefinitely be busy. And I think for a lot of lawyers, they, they probably resonate with this. They probably told a spouse or a friend, yeah, I'll be like, I think I'll be less busy in two weeks and in three weeks and whatever. <laughs> And that comes around and you're equally as busy, if not more busy. And and I'm guilty of that too. So so part of it is saying no to more things and being more deliberate with my time. Part of it is, is, is being more strategic. Okay. Like I work really well uninterrupted. So how do I find more times in my day where I can carve that out uh, or on a weekend or whatever it's going to be to, to be more efficient with deep work and then delegating, it's got to be training and trust. And so for me, it's really, I've got no excuses at this point, you know, if, if my mental belief is it'd be better if I do this and it'd be faster for the client and cheaper, then I really have to be thinking, how do we either automate this or how do I get my juniors that I'm working with up to the level I want them to be at? I can't just keep doing it myself because yep. then you'll be in that same cycle indefinitely. And that's yep. doing nobody any favors. You're going to be working more than you want. And that's not the goal of life to, to work indefinitely. I couldn't agree more. I think just taking that time to actually think things through to map it out and to automate is it seems like such a big time investment that most people avoid because they're so busy, but that is, seems to be at least for me and I'm learning this slowly. I'm a slow learner, but certainly the path. Hopefully not as slow as me on this one. So So this is the problem, Aaron, is that uh, we could, Whole, each one of these things we've talked about so far could be a conversation in our own right. I think we're just going to have to have you on as like a reoccurring guest here. So we don't have to rush through everything. We can definitely but do that. Yeah. I, amazing. I love to hear that. But I do want to hit about build your book too. Can you please yeah. just give us the rundown of your other project and what you're hoping <laughs> to accomplish there? Yeah. My theory on the legal profession, in case it wasn't clear, is that the whole profession is fucked. I think we all know this, you know, <laughs> the suicide, the depression, the anxiety, the divorce, alcoholism, all that stuff has been an issue for a while starts in law school, keeps going. And obviously, you know, the Gen Z or Gen Z, the millennial lawyers and stuff, they're even less into this ridiculousness of work a ton of hours, grind away for this prospect partnership. People will trade off money for happiness. So 
Build Your Book really started because sales in the legal industry is broken. And by broken, I mean, nobody knows what that is. So you've got a couple options. Smart lawyers are looking to good lawyer, for example, and saying, okay, I'm not any good at this business development, but if I've got people that can funnel me some leads and some good quality work, fantastic. Why would I be spending my time on this? So that's one amazing angle that definitely didn't exist when I was starting out. The second angle is people say, you know what, as a supplement to that, or maybe instead of it, I think I can do this, but I've been wasting so much time doing this. I've been going to the conferences and the lunches and the this and the that and barely getting any results. And it's a really straightforward reason why they're, they're doing it all wrong because they don't know what they're doing. And why do they not know what they're doing? Law school and then law firms. It's the same training issue all over again, just from a different angle. So there's a whole sales world out there. Matt, you know this, you are at a company that does a lot of sales <laughs> yep. and there are best practices and skills in all these things that are just foreign in the legal world. And at a lot of firms, not all, but at a lot, you talk to a partner about how they built their book and they'll tell you something that is so not applicable to you. <laughs> oh, just hand in your resume, go out there and hand in your resumes. That's how you get a job. You're like, it, it doesn't work that way anymore. And more importantly, it's not scalable. So, you know, COVID has really opened some of this up. It already existed before, but there are ways to do one-to-many newsletters, LinkedIn, this, that, where you don't have to do only one-on-ones. And even just using LinkedIn in the last couple of years, it's insane how helpful that has been for me, but it's so much more than that. So what we do is in really small group cohorts, six to eight people, we run an eight-week program. It's a complete flip classroom. So we come in, we give everyone homework each week. We, we hold you accountable. We come in, we talk about how it's going. We have a group discussion and it's all people who are in the same sort of position as you. Towards the end of the hour, we introduce the new topic for next week and give out homework for that. And the homework is all stuff like you got to go do stuff. You got to go out there and here's your task for the week. And we've got a plan. There's a method to the madness. In between weeks, we're not just leaving you there. We've got a telegram group. So like WhatsApp or any of those, we're having constant dialogue, us, but also the, the participants of the cohort. We're sharing ideas, we're sharing wins, we're overcoming struggles. And so there's this amazing accountability thing where when you see someone who's been struggling like you with the same mental roadblock and they do it and they're successful, that's part of the magic. If we were simply to just teach best practices, that wouldn't work. What works is the accountability, the understanding what actually works, and then this group part, because so much of this is mental and it's almost like half therapy at the same time, but there's so many mental reasons that are stopping people from being successful. And we teach them all that. And we offer a full money back guarantee. So if you don't think it works, give me your money back. We are that confident it's going to work. Incredible. The hands-on and the team approach, I think is just critical because you're right. You can watch all the courses, read all the books you want, unless you're actually out there doing it. And actually you won't even fully understand the material until you've gotten a few reps in and been like, oh, that didn't work. And then because that, that kind of primes your mind to be like, okay, I need to learn that unlock there. I need to, there's something blocking me here, which I'm sure is how that uh, material is much easier downloaded to, to the students. For sure. And one, one quick thing I'll say, I know we're, we're mindful of time here is just, you talk about burn and all this, like it's, it's really fun. Like we hop on these calls and I, you can see the light bulbs going off. You see people each week, like they're having success. They're bringing in clients all because of what we're doing and helping them with. And we're just giving them this ability to really unlock their ability to figure out what their practice is going to look like, what their life is going to look like. If you have more clients that gives you more power to firm, it might make you more money. Maybe you're going to go to a small firm, start your own firm, do the work you want. Like it really unlocks, whether it's through Good Lawyer, whether it's through Build Your Book or some combination, it really unlocks, I think, a lot more control and control is what so many lawyers are missing. And one other thing I'll say quickly is, you know, we really want people to be able to be authentic 
And we think that if you can be authentic, it's your secret weapon as a lawyer. So much of law firm marketing is just bland, you know, gibberish kind of stuff. And if you can be a human, people buy with emotion. They don't buy on logic. And we're so trained as lawyers, as intellectual people to think, oh, we'll just overwhelm them with my pedigree and my experience. But that's not what people buy. And we actually just launched in the last couple of weeks this re really amazing free newsletter called The Authentic Lawyer. And it's on our website. And I think, Matt, you'll put in the show notes, but yep. buildyourbook.org. It's the first thing on the website. So buildyourbook.org. Sign up twice a week, really short, really practical stuff. And we're finding people are really resonating with it. So whether you're an associate, a law student, a lawyer, sign up and let us know what you think. Well, Aaron, I see we're at the top of the hour and I know you're a busy person these days as we've just articulated for the last hour. I'm going to hold off on the final question here. and I'll get you next time on that. But People who are going to hear this are going to want to hear more from you. You've, you've given them a couple of resources there, but where's the best place to find, find you online? Yeah. So LinkedIn's probably the place to start. I spend enough time on there. So give me, <laughs> I guess, a follow is the word these days uh, on there. Uh, always happy to chat with people. Things are a little busy. So I've been limiting how frequently I do those, but feel free to reach out, send me a message for Build Your Book or, or for l quite frankly, sign up for the Be Authentic Lawyer newsletter at buildyourbook.org. If you're interested in learning more about 4L Academy courses, you can go to 4lacademy.ca. Our January courses will be uh, open by the time this airs, and we're constantly launching new things, new courses. So get in touch. You can also sign up to join our mailing list there. And we're running so many free events for mental health, for legal tech, for training law students, and really excited. Hopefully people can join more of them. Incredible. As always, Aaron, exciting and inspiring. Really appreciate all the work you're doing. And obviously, I, I think there's some pretty natural partnerships with Good Lawyer that hopefully we can uh, get going here in the, new in the near future. Can't yeah. Uh, but yeah, thanks so much for, again for taking the time. And obviously, we're going to have to get you back on again soon. My pleasure. Huge fan of what you're doing at Good Lawyer and excited to, to keep the conversation going. Amazing. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out goodlawyer.ca slash podcast, where you'll find every episode along with the show notes and resources. You can also sign up for Good Lawyer's newsletter that keeps you up to date on all the info and tools you need to turn your business into a rocket ship. Until next time, we hope you have a great week.